the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our conversation with Mark Ostreicher. The book, by the way, Hope Casting, newly released by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, uh, Amazon.com. And uh, also you can get, uh, what's your, your, your website, am I correct here, is whyismarco.com? Yeah, that's my blog. That's okay. Correct. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Why is Marco M A R K O dot com? All right, let's uh, kind of pull this thing uh, together if we can. We've we've been through a lot of the emotion side of this and, and sort of resetting a lot of our expectations. Um, certainly, having honest emotion before God uh, during that exile period is is critically important. I guess at the end of the day. Um, people wonder, is hope something I create or something that God brings? Yeah, great question. So the the process as I've seen it in Scripture is that we have longings, right? All of us have these longings. And whether we're in a hopeless or hopeful time, we have longings and desires. And those are good and bad. There's a whole combination of those. Particularly when we're going through a difficult time, we're experiencing, we often experience longings that are kind of self-focused right, because of our pain, and that's understandable. When God comes and meets us, when we open up and release control, creating space for God to come and meet us, God brings hope, and that starts to transform our longings, and that's where things really start to get beautiful and much more than just about me and my pathetic little problems, because as hope and longing start in what I call this dance, I compare it to a tango dance, because it's this this uh, dance where each of those two partners, hope and longing, continue to inform and change each other. God brings hope that shifts my longings. As my longings shift, I need to exercise more faith that God will make himself known in new ways and give me more faith, and that process starts to transform, and my longings turn outward. Instead of just being self-focused, I start to have transformed longings for the world, and that's where we start to see this idea of hope casting, that my hopes start to be for other people and their needs and their longings, and I can actually be an active agent of the hope that God wants to bring to the world. So this isn't just something passive that goes on inside of my heart or my head. I mean, you talk about in the book moving from vision to action, and as you suggest, that that process, that journey, going from need, becoming hope, becoming action, becoming hope-casting. Elaborate on that. Yeah, I really think of it. The, the mental image for me is one of those kind of classic rainbird sprinklers that turns around, you know, and yep. we all know them. is spraying all around in a circle. That that's the picture I have when I have when I experience transformed longings because of the presence of God in my life, bringing hope. I become like that rainbird sprinkler, casting off hope to people around me. And there's no question that's active. That is not just a passive thing. 
So I start to speak into and serve and pray for and and model hope in front of other people, and it has a cascading effect on their lives. Now, what's brilliant, let me interrupt, Mark, because what's brilliant about that example, if any of us have ever taken the time, uh, and listeners will say, well, Craig, you're just weird, but if any of us have ever taken the time to, to look at the way the rainbird sprinkler head operates, there's this metal arm that moves back against a steady stream of water, and it interrupts that stream of water, and it's on a spring, and it pivots back and forth, and each time it flies into the water, the force of the water presses it in the opposite direction. The spring, of course, takes it back uh, yet once again, and that's what gives that sprinkler head the momentum to go into a circle. So it's interesting because what you're suggesting here is much like the way the rainbird sprinkler head functions. It's the experience of receiving hope, giving hope, receiving hope, giving hope. Is that accurate? Absolutely. That's exactly it. That's the idea. And again, that is what we see over and over again through Scripture. Not only uh, unpacked in detail in the, the book of Isaiah, but we see it in stories like the bleeding woman, the story of Zacchaeus. I see it in blind Bartimaeus. I even see it in the, the life of Mary. And over and over again in these stories, we see that pattern emerging. And that pattern, uh, again, there is this process that we've talked about before in, in not just suddenly going from despair to hope in one day, but moving through despair, or, or as you talk about, and I think of uh, the, many of the experiences of the Apostle Paul in this, you talk about embracing dissatisfaction in moving toward hope. Yes. Yeah, because unless we're honest about our dissatisfaction, why is, why is here not good enough, right? Why is this current experience of my day or my life at this time, why is this not enough? What am I dissatisfied about? And that is an honest starting point that postures us. It's not a, it's not a, um, it's not six steps to happy living, right? Instead, these are, they're postures, they're practices that we can put into our to place in our lives in order to help us release control and open ourselves up to the presence of God. So, those postures are honesty with ourselves, that's the dissatisfaction part, right, naming our dissatisfaction, and then honest cries to God, uh, and in that is releasing control. And then we face fear, and we have to exercise faith or a force of will to continue to keep our hands open and not try to grasp control again. If we pull back and grasp control, we go right back to exile again. Mm-hmm. And if we we practice those three things, then I believe that God uh, is freed up. We have opened ourselves up to the hope-bringing presence of Jesus in our lives. And then, yeah, our longings get transformed, and we cast off more hope to others. We we have certainly distilled into a very short period of time, Mark, uh, great detail in all of this, and listeners can certainly have the opportunity to go much deeper and understand more about this matter of hope, what it means from a biblical perspective, and not just how to how to to possess it and take and take hold of it and take charge of it, but that sense of hope both in the current tense and the future tense, and as we said a moment ago, hope uh, you know starting with need that becomes hope, which becomes action, which becomes hope casting. That's the title of the book, Hope Casting, and it's available, as we mentioned, at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Its author has been our guest on this segment of the program, Mark Ostreicher. Mark, thanks so much for the time and the insights. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Of all of my trips overseas, I think the one that stands in my mind the clearest and perhaps the most indelibly was one of many trips into China, having an opportunity to meet a woman who at the time probably was 80, 82 years old. And I recall first being ushered into this small room that was a living room of hers um, in a fairly nondescript uh, section of uh, Beijing of basically uh, large apartment buildings. And uh, as we sat down and began to uh, converse, I noticed that her hands were badly gnarled, uh, reminiscent of somebody who perhaps has a severe diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. You see people that have their hands that are so knotted up and crippled and almost to the point of being deformed. And that typically is a sign of the impact of rheumatoid arthritis. So with that assumption, we began our conversation. And as we visited, slowly the story came out that during the time of the um, revolution that took place in the 1960s, the so-called Cultural Revolution, where a Maoist came in and uh, decided that they were going to take everyone in the country that was educated, that he either had been a doctor or a professor or a school teacher, put them all out into farmland so they could be re-educated through labor and essentially turn over running of the operation of the country to uneducated peasants, that in the middle of that Cultural Revolution, there was a major clash that Christians found themselves in the middle of. At the time, in communist China in the 1960s, um, organized prosecution of Christians was even more severe then than it is today, so much so that merely possessing a Bible could land you in jail. The story emerged of this woman that hearing that the Revolutionary Guard had been making their way through her block, she had a Bible. She, of course, was a Christian. She took that Bible, wrapped it in plastic, and buried it in the ashes of her fireplace where she did her cooking. Unfortunately, much to her chagrin, the commies' authorities were far more thorough than she expected, and after a thorough search of her home, they eventually uncovered the Bible hidden in plastic in the ashes of the chimney. When they found it, she intervened and quickly snatched the Bible back out of their hands and said that this was the most important link she had to her relationship with God and to, by all means, please not take her Bible. Well, the revolutionary soldiers argued with her, and finally they said, Woman, you either give us that Bible or we will beat it out of your hands. And beat it, they did. In fact, the condition of her hands when we met her in her early 80s had nothing to do with rheumatoid arthritis. She was, in fact, perfectly healthy. The terrible deformity of her hands was because she vowed not to let loose of her most prized possession, God's Word. And as a result, they took a club and so badly beat her hands that they were horrifically deformed even 40 years after this event took place. This story left an indelible impression upon me meeting her because her story, while seemingly unique to the Western ear, in fact is demonstrative of what is in many parts of the world normative Christianity. And normative by that I mean the sense of persecution that Christians face. 
In fact, in many parts of the world today, the model of Christianity that you will encounter, whether you're in parts of Africa or the Middle East or Asia, looks much like the conditions that Christians were facing in the first century church, being persecuted simply because you name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Some would argue that today there is seemingly a systematic global war on Christians, though it's not often talked about in the mainstream media. You won't hear it discussed on the 6 o'clock news. It won't be the topic of discussion around the water cooler tomorrow morning, and yet it happens. It is happening multiple times per day in upwards of what some report to be almost 130 nations across the world. Joining me tonight is senior Vatican analyst for CNN and celebrated author John Allen, who's penned a new book called The Global War on Christians. John, great to have you on the program tonight. Craig, it's a pleasure to be with you. We'll see if we can avoid some of those nettlesome, erroneous errors. Yes, <laughs> indeed. We'll just keep our facts factual tonight. Yeah. John, one of the big facts that you share inside the pages of this new book is the fact that there is an unprecedented level of... I guess systematic in some levels, in some ways, certainly systematic by that meaning that it is either an institutional attack on the rights and religious freedoms of Christians by governments, in the case of communist China or Vietnam, in other cases Christians falling victim and uh, becoming uh, on the receiving side of persecution simply because they are Christians and not of some other religion, Uh, for example, uh, what happens to people who convert from Islam to Christianity in countries like Saudi Arabia and others. Your book essentially takes us through every part of planet Earth and is kind of a glimpse into what is sadly a best-kept secret, and that is just how widespread the attack on Christians in the world today is. Yeah, that's right, Craig. I mean, I think our media does a creditable job of bringing isolated and scattered episodes of anti-Christian violence to us. I mean, you know, if a, if a church is bombed in Pakistan, or if Christians are brutalized in Nigeria by the Boko Haram, we might hear about it. But what is never supplied uh, in those reports is the context. And the context is... These are not simply isolated incidents. These are part of a a broad global pattern. Now, I mean, to be clear, Christians are not the only group out there whose whose rights are threatened, but I I think they are the group whose story is least told. Uh, And they are those, statistically speaking, who are most often in the firing line. I mean, the the estimate, uh, the low-end estimate for the number of Christians killed every year around the world for their faith is 9,000. The high-end estimate is 100,000 which means somewhere between 1 and 11 Christians are being killed every hour of every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. This is a global pandemic. This global pandemic, of course, um, is not altogether under wraps. We know that annually the U.S. State Department puts out a report on religious persecution around the globe. Sadly, five of the top uh, ten biggest um, offenders in this arena also happen to be some of the top five U.S. trade partners. Uh, countries like uh, communist China, for example, where uh, religious persecution there is not necessarily at the hands of, of fellow Chinese as much as it is uh, systematic and organized by the state. How widespread is this sort of institutionalized level of persecution against Christians? Well, it's sort of a bewildering cocktail of forces out there that, that put Christians in harm's way. I mean, ranging from various forms of religious radicalism, not just Muslim radicalism, by the way, uh, but in India, there was a rising tide of anti-Christian hatred being f- fueled by uh, radical uh, Hinduism. Uh, in places like Myanmar and Sri Lanka, we're talking about radical Buddhism. But you also have to throw into the mix 
state-sponsored uh, anti-Christian hostility. Uh, and, of course, China would be the leading example, but not the only one. You could also look to, to states such as North Korea, uh, Eritrea, Belarusia. I mean, basically, any place there's a police state that sees religious minorities as a threat to its hold on power. Uh, you also have to throw into the mix uh, corporate interests in some parts of the world that don't like the stands that Christians take in defense of social justice. Uh, drug gangs around the world that don't like the, the stands Christian ta- Christians take against the drug trade. I mean, I- the, the list of, of potential oppressors uh, of Christians and other minority groups uh, is depressingly long, Craig. And sadly, for many of us in the West, as I say, and you pointed this out uh, throughout the book, The Global War on Christians, not that it never gets reported, but it's typically underreported or not contextualized. Uh, for example, I had a trip many years ago, first one into Indonesia, and we were treated to tours of burned-out sections, literally block after block after block of homes and businesses that had been destroyed. And we were told that it had been part of a 1993 through 95 purge of Christians, my militant Muslims there, who were um, big supporters of the Suwarto regime. And this group of probably 15 journalists, we looked at each other and said, now, wait a minute. Why don't I recall hearing anything about this? Well, the fact of the matter was that it was very well kept under wrap and apparently wasn't exciting enough to be covered by mainstream global news sources, and so therefore it remained a very quiet secret, a secret to everyone, except, of course, the families of those in Indonesia that lost their lives. This kind of a story repeated over and over and over again. Why is it that we don't hear more about this? We'll get into that part of the story. John Allen, Jr. with us tonight. His book is called The Global War on Christians, dispatches from the front lines of anti-Christian persecution. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If these statistics are to be believed, and there's no reason to doubt them, 80% of violations of religious freedom today are directed towards Christians. And yet, ironically, while it captures the news once in a while, as our guest today, John Allen, suggests, if it's a major firebombing of a church in Pakistan that kills upwards of 100 people, there's a chance that might make it to the news. But for the most part, a lot of these stories simply go without ever being covered or talked about in the West. Now, the fact that two-thirds of the world's 2.3 billion Christians live outside of the West. I suppose that says something, John, for those of us in the West. In other words, if it doesn't affect us or it doesn't affect me, it probably isn't important. Well, I think that's part of the picture. I think another part of the picture, Craig, in terms of why persecution of Christians struggles to to sort of break through the noise, uh, and and you and I are both media people. I mean, we understand the power of narratives in, in shaping the way the media approaches a story. The narrative about Christianity in the West, uh, which is badly outdated but but still around, uh, is that Christianity is this big, you know, massively powerful, wealthy, influential social institution, which makes it very difficult for a lot of people in our business to get their minds around the idea that Christians could actually be the victims of persecution. But as you indicate, that doesn't do justice to where Christians are today. Two-thirds of them, as you say, live outside the West. A solid majority of them are impoverished, living below the poverty line, hundreds of millions of them in extreme poverty. They are often also members of ethnic, linguistic, and cultural minorities, so they're doubly or triply at risk, and they often live in some pretty bad neighborhoods. 
Uh, you add all that up, it's no surprise that Christians often find themselves in harm's way. So what I think what we have to do is we have to change the narrative about who Christians today are and about where they are. Let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, Again, you know, uh, I think from sort of historical Western Christian viewpoint, we think of the... uh, the roots that Christianity in the United States, for example, has coming from Europe, and we see Europe and North America as kind of the two um, strongest regions of the world that enjoy some of the largest populations of Christians. That, in fact, is a dynamic that has been changing. If we look at parts of China, we mentioned earlier, and Africa, they've got some of the highest growth rates of Christianity. In fact, if the government statistics are to be believed, in a place like communist China, more than 5,000 people a day come to the saving knowledge of Christ. That's a pretty significant number. And yet, I think you're right. Part of the problem is we don't really understand who the profile of today's Christian is. Well, that's right. We have a kind of mindset about Christianity that is sort of stuck somewhere in the in the 18th century. Uh, I mean, the, the truth is, I mean, China, you're quite right, uh, is a phenomenal growth story for Christianity. I mean, the, in 1949, at the time of the communist takeover, which was the last year that the, there was a national census that included religion, there were fewer than a million Christians in China. Uh, the estimate was about 750,000. Today, the kind of mid-range estimate is that there are 100 million. I mean, that's an absolutely astronomic explosion of Christianity. In fact, some projections are that by the middle of the 21st century, China will be perhaps the largest Christian nation on Earth, if not certainly in the top three. And, of course, the irony there is that those are largely government numbers. They tend to always downplay these things. And, you know, when it comes to the largest portion of the population of the church there, the bulk of it is underground. I mean, they don't recognize the papacy. They don't recognize um, evangelical Christianity there. And so imagine if you were able to take a head count of the, the church, both above ground and underground, how staggering those numbers might look? Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and you mentioned Sub-Saharan Africa. Christianity in Sub-Saharan Africa in just the second half of the 20th century uh, had a growth rate of 6,708%. I mean, almost 7,000%. I mean, you know, I, I don't care what line of work you're in. I mean, if you've got a 7,000% growth rate, that ain't too bad. You know, I mean, Africa has become the single great, single most uh, site of uh, the most explosive growth of Christianity anywhere in the world. Now, you know, as Christians, we would rejoice in all of that, but, but the truth of it is, Christianity is growing precisely in those places where it is most oppressed. And of course, those two things are not unrelated. I mean, the, the ancient line from Tertullian that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the faith, that's as true in the 21st century as it was in the 2nd. Uh, but it also means that an increasing share of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world are in harm's way, and they need our solidarity. Is part of the issue here, too, John, perhaps, that, uh, and, I, and I mean this slightly facetious and yet at the core, it's probably true, that these areas that are experiencing some of the most phenomenal <coughs> pardon me, growth are, are in badly need of a public relations firm? I mean, for example, the Church of Scientology, they would, they would like you to believe that they have millions of adherents around the globe when it, it, it's more like in the hundreds of thousands, and yet it's all generally about how you tell the story. The problem is that there's no real mouthpiece, so to speak, on behalf of the persecuted church in sub-Saharan Africa or in places like communist China. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is that those natural mouthpieces that we do have tend to have a built-in bias for telling only part of the story. I mean, the political right in the United States, for example, will often jump all over the persecution of Christians uh, in Muslim countries because it serves their foreign policy agenda, 
but they go strangely quiet when it comes to the fate of Palestinian Christianity inside Israel. Meanwhile, the political left uh, will play up the fate of Palestinian Christians, but they don't want to talk about what's going on, say, in Venezuela or in other countries in Cuba, uh, other countries that have leftist governments. So both of the, the factions that tend to dominate public conversation in the United States tell us only part of the story. Well, and we ourselves have been... Like Christian persecution, I try to puncture... Uh, is that it somehow that raising this issue somehow benefits either the, the left or the right. The truth is, persecution of Christians is an equal opportunity employer. Absolutely. And, you know, part of the problem here, too, I think, John, is the fact that we ourselves, uh, as a nation, have also been contributory to this problem. I mean, for example, with, with great uh, pomp and circumstance, we, we applauded the ouster of Hosni Mubarak of uh, Egypt, and yet we've spent little time focusing on the plight of Coptic Christians there uh, who are being persecuted in a very wholesale fashion. Then, of course, there's the great march on um, uh, Iraq, and uh, I, I would defy anybody to be able to put together a million Christians anywhere in the the nation of Iraq today, that they've all been pretty much eradicated and have run to other uh, neighboring countries because, at least under Saddam Hussein, while he was certainly not a nice guy, uh, was a secularist and largely left the, the church in Iraq alone. That has not been the case since the so-called regime change. Well, that's absolutely right. And if you talk to Syrian Christians today, they will tell you that they are terrified that exactly the same thing is going to happen to them. That is, a police state is going to fall under Western pressure. What's going to follow will be chaos, in which all minorities will be at risk, but in the front lines of those at risk will be Christians who will be carrying bullseyes around on their backs. And in one of the things that I, one of the arguments I try to make in this book, when the question comes up, what can we do to help these persecuted Christians? One thing we can do is make sure that their voices are heard in our foreign policy debates. Before we drop bombs someplace, we might want to ask the people who have to live in that neighborhood, and in particular the Christians, what the consequences of doing so are going to be. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that to, to erase the political blind spot, and we'll talk about that a bit more when we come after uh, come back after a time out, but, you know, it, it's been interesting that, uh, for example, we will look at a country, a major oil trading partner like Saudi Arabia, and we are quick to criticize them um, for their treatment of women's rights over there, and yet we are hard-pressed to say anything about the way they treat Christians in Saudi Arabia. We'll talk a bit more about that political blind spot and what we can do to help better eradicate it. Our visit today is with best-selling author John Allen. His new book, by the way, an absolute page-turner. And if this is a topic that at all touches your heart, and I certainly hope that it is, certainly down through the years we've talked about this topic almost ad nauseum because I believe it's so critically important. I want to urge you to get a copy of John's new book. It is published by Image Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those still exist somewhere, don't they? Or through Amazon.com. Let's take a quick time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. John Allen, The Global War on Christians. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when we think of the global war on Christians, and I will tell you, having spent time with these people in everywhere from North Korea to Vietnam to communist China and parts of the Middle East that I can't even mention, to a person they've all reminded us, as I've said, you know, as I go home to America, what should I be telling 
fellow believers. They've all said to a person, don't forget us, please pray for us. Oddly, none have asked for a cessation of the persecution. I think that's largely because there's there's a degree of spiritual maturity to understand that as we see outlined in the the book of Acts and certainly historically in the first century church, um, persecution is kind of a normative Christianity. In fact, what we enjoy in the West is a very different type of Christianity, certainly than what uh, the founding fathers of Christendom went through uh, all those years ago. That said, though, there are more things that we can and should be doing than just praying for them. And as John Allen on details inside of his new book, The Global War on Christians, um, we have a political blind spot on this topic, John, sadly. And I mentioned before the break, I always find it interesting how we'll consider Saudi Arabia to be one of our major trading partners. It certainly is when it comes to the commodity called oil. We will whisper a comment or two regarding, oh, something concerning human rights and the way women are treated there, but largely have nothing to say about the way the kingdom of Saudi Arabia treats Christians. Do we need to change this? Oh, of course we need to change it. Uh, and by the way, Saudi Arabia is a, is a fascinating case because, you know, when we look at Christianity in the Middle East, we tend to think of it as an endangered species. And, of course, you're absolutely right. You've mentioned the, the, the way the church in Iraq has been gutted, uh, the threats faced by the Coptic Christian community in Egypt, Syria, other parts of the map. Uh, you know, the, the estimate is that, that Christians were almost 20% of the population in the Middle East at the, in the middle of the 20th century, and uh, today they're around 12, and the projection is by mid-century they'll be 6. People talk about an exodus out of the region, and yet in Saudi Arabia there is a rapidly growing Christian community. There are now an estimated almost 2 million Christians inside the kingdom, uh, a million and a half of them being Catholics, uh, and that they're not native Arabs, they're not native Saudis. These are basically so-called guest workers, you know, Filipinos, uh, Koreans, uh, Vietnamese, Nigerians, Lebanese, uh, and others who have been drawn to work in the domestic service industries and the oil and gas business, uh, who are uh, basically three times discriminated against, one as impoverished, basically indentured servants, two uh, as lower-class ethnic minorities, and three as Christians. And I think on all three of those scores, we ought to be pressing Saudi Arabia to do a better job. Another case is um, North Korea. Now, I know North Korea is a bit of a sticky wicket, as the saying goes, because we're dealing with issues concerning uh, nuclear weapons there, which has been an ongoing battle and uh, and certainly one that will no doubt last for a long time to come. And yet even as Dennis, is it Dennis Rodman that's been in and out of the country, I think Dennis Rodman, uh, that's been flitting in and out of Saudi Arabia and concerning Kim Jong-un as one of his best basketball buddies. And yet nothing is ever said about the fact that just simply possess a Bible in North Korea comes with a sentence of death. Well, yes. I mean, the, the anti-Christian animus in North Korea is so grotesque that if you even have a Christian grandparent, you are disqualified from holding senior office in the military, you're disqualified from pro- political life, you're disqualified from leadership positions uh, in industry. Uh, there are tens of thousands of Christians in North Korea who are languishing in what amount to religious concentration camps. Uh, tens of thousands more have been disappeared over the years. Uh, it is a nightmare, which is why every year, and of course there are organizations out there that rank countries in terms of how hostile they are to Christians, North Korea routinely finishes in first place. I actually, I, I almost hesitate to talk about North Korea in some ways, because it can seem so uh, surreally hostile to Christianity that people might think it's a, a kind of unique case. The truth is, 
North Korea is merely the most grotesque example of what is truly a global problem. Indeed so. I mean, and I've shared with listeners on this program the challenges that I've had traveling in and out of some of these countries, and at one point uh, narrowly became a guest of the uh, uh, of, of the of uh, Vietnam because of uh, involvement with Christians there. I mean, the the issues that you speak to inside of the global war on Christians are very real issues, and I'm delighted, John, that you've in such a concise fashion given voice to. Uh, these fellow believers around the planet. I guess the the big question I leave you with is, in terms of response, I, we mentioned earlier certainly to pray for them is is first and foremost. What else can we do? How can we better engage um, on a political level some of these issues that's not our direct responsibility, but our elected officials in Washington, D.C.'s responsibility to say and do something about? Well, one, uh, in, in terms of the humanitarian level, we can support those organizations that are now and have been for years trying to deliver aid to Christians who are on the, on the firing line. I mean, in the Catholic world, there are groups like the Catholic Near East Welfare Association, Aid to the Church in Need. In the Protestant world, there is uh, open doors and, and like-minded organizations. So reach out to those folks and, uh, and support them, too. Uh, I think we can uh, do everything we can to raise consciousness about this issue. Uh, I mean, you know, God bless our Jewish brothers and sisters. If anywhere in the world today a swastika is spray-painted on a synagogue, by tomorrow they will have raised the alarm in a way that the world simply can't miss. I think we Christians can steal a page from their playbook. Uh, and third, as I said earlier, I think we can demand that, uh, that our leaders listen to the voices of, of minorities, including Christians, on the ground, uh, in our foreign policy calculations. I mean, I, I frankly think it's unconscionable that we could have been on the brink of going to war in Syria without stopping to think how that might affect the people who have to live with the aftermath of it. Uh, and so on all those levels, uh, I think there's a great deal we can do. Absolutely. And you mentioned some of these fine organizations. Uh, Dr. John Wormbrandt, who had been a guest in this program many years ago, uh, his organization, Voice of the Martyrs, has also done a lot sure, to, to raise great. awareness. And, and all good organizations, and certainly ones that, as uh, John Allen points out, we need to be supporting. Uh, we need to be sensitizing our representatives, as he points out. You know, it's one thing to say we're going to go in and drop bombs or, you know, uh, put the bad guys out of business. But there are often significant consequences that come to all of that. I mean, uh, if we could understand how the church in Iraq has just been torn to shreds because of U.S. military involvement over there. Would we rethink that position? I'd like to hope so. Much to pray about. It's, uh, again, a fantastic book. And, John, we hope to get you back on again soon when we can spend some more time. John Allen, author of The Global War on Christians, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Anti-Christian Persecution, the newly published book, again, um, by Image Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.